Hello, my name is Kevin Fernando. I'm a GP partner at North Berwick Health Centre near Edinburgh and also Education Director of GP Notebook Education. Welcome to our new season of GP Notebook Podcasts. Bite-sized, regular chats for all of us working in primary care. Podcasts will cover clinical tips and hacks, as well as hot topics to help make our lives a wee bit easier, but ultimately to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. Follow me on Twitter, at Dr. Kevin Fernando, for more clinical tips and hacks relevant to all of us working in primary care, and also visit www.gpnotebookeducation.com to register for our virtual 2021 GP Notebook study groups, as well as download free resources and shortcuts. In this podcast, I'm going to talk about diagnosing and managing vertigo in primary care. And to complement this podcast, I've created a GP Notebook shortcut on the diagnosis of vertigo in primary care, which again can be downloaded from www.gpnotebookeducation.com. So to set the scene for this podcast, here's a humorous quote from Professor Walter Matthews, who I'm told was one of the best and most respected neurologists of the 20th century. He published the first edition of Practical Neurology in 1963, and within this first edition, famously quipped, there can be few physicians so dedicated to their art that they do not experience a slight decline in spirits when they learn that their patient's complaint is giddiness. This frequently means that after exhaustive inquiry, it will still not be entirely clear what it is that the patient feels wrong, and even less so why they feel it. This did make me chuckle and is also true in general practice, isn't it? So as we all know, vertigo is commonly encountered in primary care and a BMG editorial published during 2012 pleaded with us that not all vertigo is labyrinthitis and we in primary care need to establish a correct underlying diagnosis so as not to miss any serious neurological causes but also to ensure that we administer the correct treatment. Now, one of the main sinister diagnoses to exclude is a cerebellar vascular event. And the HINTS clinical examination, HINTS stands for head impulse, nystagmus, and test of skew, can reliably distinguish a cerebellar stroke from other causes of vertigo. Now, this HINTS clinical examination is something we can consider in primary care with a little practice and some help from YouTube, and I'll refer to this later on. Other causes of vertigo that we'll be discussing aside from labyrinthitis include BPPV, benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, also vestibular migraine, and also Meniere's disease. So for those like myself, whose ENT anatomy is a little rusty, let me dust down my anatomy coloring book. So the labyrinth is in the inner ear and includes the cochlea, vestibule, and three semicircular canals. The semicircular canals are a maze of fluid-filled channels that sense movement of your head and help to control balance and posture. The cochlea is a hollow, spiral-shaped bone which plays a key role in the sense of hearing and contributes towards the process of auditory transduction, which is the conversion of sound waves 
into electrical impulses that can be interpreted by the brain as individual frequencies of sound. The vestibule is simply a larger fluid-filled chamber connecting the semicircular canals to the cochlea. And finally, the vestibular cochlear nerve, or the eighth cranial nerve, as its name suggests, has two divisions, the cochlear nerve and the vestibular nerve. Now, the vestibular cochlear nerve transmits sound and balance information from the inner ear to the brain. So let's begin with what exactly is vertigo? Vertigo is simply the illusion of movement, whereas labyrinthitis refers to inflammation of the labyrinth. Further confusing the situation is the diagnosis of vestibular neuritis or vestibular neuronitis, as it's sometimes referred to. To be honest, I always thought this was synonymous with labyrinthitis, and indeed, a nice clinical knowledge summary published during 2017 acknowledged that vestibular neuritis and labyrinthitis have been used interchangeably in the past, but actually specific terminology is now recommended by our expert colleagues. So, vestibular neuritis is inflammation of the vestibular nerve with sparing of the cochlear nerve. So this causes sudden onset vertigo, usually accompanied by nausea and vomiting, but without any loss of hearing. If there is associated hearing loss, then we should use the term labyrinthitis. Pragmatically, however, the causes and symptoms of labyrinthitis and vestibular neuritis are very similar, with the exception of the hearing loss I have just mentioned. So key references for this podcast include the aforementioned BMJ 2012 editorial, a more recent BMJ 10-minute consultation article on acute vertigo published during 2019, a BJGP clinical intelligence article on sudden onset dizziness and vertigo symptoms published during 2020, and finally, a review published in Practical Neurology during 2019 entitled Dizziness Demystified. Now, there are links to these papers and other references and resources in the show notes for this podcast, as well as key take-home messages. Also included are some useful links for patients, including a YouTube video on performing the Epley maneuver at home for those suffering from BPPV, which I'll talk about later on. And also, I'd like to thank my cousin-in-law, Ria Motha, who is a consultant in audiological medicine at the Barts Trust for her top tips and pitfalls to avoid and also reviewing the content of this podcast. So let's continue with a case study. Lindsay is a 44-year-old lady who presents to us in primary care with recurrent dizzy episodes over the last month. Lindsay feels like her head is spinning. She feels nauseated with these episodes, but there's no history of vomiting. Lindsay can walk unaided but feels very unsteady on her feet during these episodes. The dizziness can last for hours before resolving. There's no clear precipitant to these episodes and there's no history of headache. Lindsay denies any hearing loss or tinnitus. So what is going on with Lindsay? So let's start with some tips on how to assess a dizzy patient. 
Well, a key point to clarify is whether there's any false movement of the world. The patients will tell, frequently tell us, won't they, the room is spinning around. Or is there an internal sensation of movement? I feel my head is spinning. And of course, Lindsay clearly describes this. So she does appear to be describing true vertigo and an underlying vestibular cause is likely. If there's no hallucination of movement or vertigo, then the dizziness is liked, likely to be cardiovascular, neurological or psychological in origin. I'll cover the management of dizziness in a future podcast, but useful things to do here include cardiovascular and neurological examinations, of course, lying and standing blood pressures, and also a medication review. Now, the length of the vertigo episode is also helpful. If it is seconds, BPPV is likely. If it's minutes to hours, Menier's disease or vestibular migraine is more likely. Or if it continues for hours to days, then vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis is more likely. Once again, we must not miss a diagnosis of cerebellar stroke in primary care which can present very similarly to labyrinthitis, but often with more severe imbalance or even inability to stand. More on this later. Next, let's discuss vestibular neuritis and labyrinthitis as differential diagnoses. Now, these conditions tend to cause sudden onset continuous vertigo, usually in the presence of nausea and vomiting, but no other neurological symptoms. Symptoms are not positional, and individuals are usually bedbound, feeling very miserable for themselves. These are often the individuals who request home visits. Symptoms can last for hours to days, and diagnosis is confirmed by the presence of horizontal unidirectional nystagmus. The movement will always beat in one direction, irrespective of whether the eyes are looking left, right, or center. Now, vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis can follow a viral upper respiratory tract infection. Treatment is supportive and includes short-term vestibular sedatives such as cyclozine 50 milligrams three times a day for up to just three days to help the individual get out of bed, mobilize, and keep food and drink down. Longer-term vestibular sedative therapy can actually delay the body's compensatory mechanisms and can actually prevent recovery. Treatment with antiviral drugs, steroids or benzodiazepines is not recommended. Physical activity where possible should also be encouraged to aid vestibular compensation and expedite recovery. Recovery is usually uneventful within weeks. Now, the www.nhs.uk website has very helpful patient information on labyrinthitis and vestibular neuritis with a patient-centered video and signposting towards vestibular rehabilitation exercises. Rarely, vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis can be complicated by secondary BPPV, which I'll be talking about shortly. Importantly, it is extremely rare for vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis to recur. If a patient describes recurrent episodes of dizziness, then consider a diagnosis of BPPV 
of vestibular migraine instead. Vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis are not causes of recurrent vertigo. This was a very important take-home message for me and will certainly change my own practice. Next, BPPV, benign paroxysmal positional vertigo. Now, BPPV is actually the most common cause of recurrent vertigo in adults we are likely to encounter in primary care, with a lifetime prevalence of around 2.4%. It accounts for nearly a quarter of all hospital visits due to dizziness or vertigo, so commoner than perhaps many of us appreciate. BPPV is more common in elderly women with a peak incidence in their 60s with a female to male preponderance of around 2.5 to 1. Recurrences of BPPV are very common with an annual recurrence rate of 15 to 20%. Now, BPPV is positional, as its name suggests. Vertigo is triggered with head movements. Classically, patients tell us, whenever I turn over in bed or look up at the top shelf, I get so dizzy. There may be a history of head trauma or vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis. This, as I briefly mentioned, is termed secondary BPPV. Notably, Recurrent, even brief episodes of BPPV can be mistaken for a more prolonged episode of vertigo. So always ask about periods of relief. The history is really important here. We need to separate the actual spinning sensation from the nausea, malaise and unsteadiness that may persist afterwards for up to 30 minutes. The spinning itself will not last more than a minute or two. So what causes BPPV? Well, BPPV is caused by stray otoliths or small calcium carbonate crystals in the posterior semicircular canal. Turning the head causes these otoliths to stimulate sensory hair cells, which triggers vertigo. BPPV is diagnosed with the hall pike maneuver, which triggers an attack and nystagmus is observed if the hall pike maneuver is positive. Now, the whole pike is a positional maneuver in which the patient's head is turned sideways and then the patient is tipped backwards so that their head overhangs the edge of the examination couch. Predictably, it can be unpleasant for the patient and should be avoided if there's any known significant neck pathology, such as cervical spine instability. Now, obviously, the whole pipe maneuver is difficult to describe easily in a podcast, so I've put a YouTube link in the show notes to a helpful video which neatly illustrates the whole pipe maneuver. Well worth having a look at this if you're not familiar with it already. Now, reassuringly, the majority, 50 to 85% of BPPV, spontaneously resolves after three to six months. The Epley maneuver can be considered for those who are significantly symptomatic. This is a five-step repositioning maneuver that clears the otoliths from the posterior semicircular canal and can be very, very effective. Again, this is difficult to describe succinctly in a podcast, so again, I've signposted another helpful YouTube video in the show notes to demonstrate it. The Epley maneuver is actually something I have been doing myself in primary care for several years with varying degrees of success. 
there's no doubt it is time consuming and can of course be very unpleasant for patients. But if successfully done, individuals can expect a full resolution of symptoms within 24 to 48 hours. Alternatively, we can refer to our local physiotherapist for assistance with the Epley maneuver. Now, importantly, there is no role for medication in the treatment of BPPV. Specifically, labyrinthine uh, sedatives such as cyclozine are not helpful. Okay, let's talk about vestibular migraine next. Now, this is something I have to admit I've never diagnosed in my many years as a GP. But on the basis of the research for this podcast, vestibular migraine is certainly something I will be actively looking for from now on, especially in the context on what I previously thought was recurrent labyrinthitis. So vestibular migraine has a prevalence of around 1% in the general population. Vertigo and vestibular migraine can last minutes to days and may be time-locked with headache or other typical migraine features such as nausea, photophobia or phonophobia. Now notably headache may or may not be present so we shouldn't rely on symptoms of headache to establish a diagnosis of vestibular migraine. Individuals also often report motion sensitivity. A personal or family history of migraine or a family history of vertigo can also be useful clues. Vestibular migraine can be triggered by stress, tiredness, skipping meals, certain food groups and menstruation as in regular migraine and also be mindful that these triggers can, can, and can occur up to 48 hours prior to the attack. Examination wise, Hallpike's manoeuvre is negative, that is to say it will not trigger an attack of vertigo or elicit nystagmus. Lifestyle interventions to identify and avoid triggers are often all that is required for the treatment of vestibular migraine, but if attacks continue to be frequent or have a debilitating impact on quality of life, we can consider the usual prophylactic migraine medications such as beta blockers such as propanolol, tricyclic antidepressants such as amitriptyline, anti-epileptics such as topiramate, or now antihypertensives candesartan, which is actually now recommended in the Scottish Sign 155 Pharmacological Management of Migraine, published during 2018. As with all migraine prophylaxis, we need to actively titrate up the dose to a level that controls symptoms with minimal side effects. And of course, we can consider referring to our specialist colleagues if not responsive. Next, a few brief diagnostic tips and pitfalls to avoid for Meniere's disease. Now, Meniere's disease is an extremely rare condition and not something we can reliably diagnose in primary care. However, we need to be aware of when to suspect it so we can refer urgently to our local vestibular services. Meniere's disease is much less common than vestibular migraine with a prevalence of around 0.2% in the general population. We should suspect Meniere's disease in anyone with a history of profound episodes of vertigo lasting less than an hour associated with unilateral auditory symptoms such as hearing loss, tinnitus and oral fullness. Attacks are recurrent and hearing loss 
often recovers between attacks in the early stages, but eventually becomes permanent. It is unclear what exactly causes Meniere's disease, but it is thought to be related to a fluid buildup in the labyrinth, or what our expert colleagues call endolymphatic hydrops. Also, a familial tendency is observed in around about 10% of cases. So what should we do in primary care? We should refer anyone with suspected Meniere's disease to our ENT colleagues for further investigation to rule out other causes of unilateral auditory symptoms. And actually, these individuals may require specialist treatment such as intratympanic injections of gentamicin or dexamethasone. So what else can we advise in primary care? Salt and caffeine reduction should be advised, and antiemetics such as prochlorperazine or cyclozine can be helpful for nausea and vomiting associated with vertigo, but usually do not help the vertigo itself. Now, interestingly, there is no high-quality evidence to support the use of beta-histine or CERC for vertigo. Food for thought, perhaps, for the many patients who continue this long-term on their repeat prescriptions. Perhaps an idea for a quality improvement activity for those with Meniere's disease diagnosed and circ-initiated in primary care. Importantly, if we are rationalising treatment, we should wean them off the better histine very slowly. Finally, what red flags in patients presenting with acute vertigo do we need to be aware of in primary care? Unilateral new onset and progressive hearing loss might be suggestive of a cerebellopontine angle tumour or other malignancy. Focal neurological signs such as facial weakness, diplopia or limb weakness, especially in the context of vascular risk factors, may suggest a posterior circulation stroke. Now, the HINTS clinical examination I mentioned earlier is a useful test to assess sudden onset acute vestibular syndrome. Sudden onset vertigo, nausea or vomiting, and gait unsteadiness. And the HINTS test is actually recommended by NICE in their Suspected Neurological Conditions Guideline published June 2019. The HINTS test can help us differentiate clinically uh, between a central versus peripheral cause of vertigo. So it can help distinguish vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis from a cerebellar stroke. So what exactly is the HINTS clinical examination? Well, HINTS, as I said earlier on, stands for Head Impulse, Nystagmus, and Test of Skew, and is a three-part oculomotor test. If any portion of the test indicates central vertigo, then the test is positive, and further urgent assessment for stroke or other central pathology is warranted. Now, once again, the HINTS test is challenging to describe succinctly in a podcast. So I've signposted another helpful YouTube link in the show notes to illustrate it. It's well worth familiarizing yourself with it for those not infrequent duty doctor scenarios of acute onset dizziness. So have a watch, practice on a colleague. And actually, I find it makes a great subject for a tutorial with our trainees or medical students. So returning then to our case study, Lindsay, there are no clear red flags that are alarming me or suggesting I should refer her for urgent assessment in secondary care. Her episodes of vertigo are intermittent and not positional, making labyrinthitis and BPPV less likely. 
There is no loss of hearing or tinnitus, which essentially excludes Menia's disease. So perhaps she is suffering from vestibular migraine. A history of headache, as we discussed, is not essential to the diagnosis. And actually, on re-exploring her history, the dizzy episodes tend to occur around the time of her periods, a common precipitant of migraine. So, perhaps a trial of good old-fashioned amitriptyline 10 milligrams Nocte in the first instance might be helpful for Lindsay. Last of all, if your patient is not making progress after three to six months, think about early referral to a specialist vestibular service or neurology if you suspect migraine like Lindsay. These conditions sadly become harder to treat the longer the symptoms persist. And of course, always be mindful of and treat any underlying anxiety and or depression. So thank you all for listening. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please do have a look at the GP Notebook shortcut on diagnosing vertigo in primary care I've created to complement this podcast. Please make sure to subscribe to our other podcasts, which are available on all major platforms. Also, please do feel free to get in touch via social media at Dr. Kevin Fernando on Twitter or email kevin at gpnotebook.co.uk if you have any questions, comments or ideas for future podcasts. You should also visit www.gpnotebookeducation.com to register for our virtual GP Notebook study groups and download free resources and shortcuts to help make our lives a wee bit easier but ultimately to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care.